Welcome to the Inbound Logistics video podcast series presented by Inbound Logistics Magazine and Zometry. Today, we're looking at the top trends in manufacturing and supply chain for 2024. Joining us are Joe Hinrichs, President and CEO of CSX, and Wes Norris, Senior Vice President of Sales for Zometry. Here is our host, Amy Roach. Thanks, Jeff. And welcome, Joe and Wes. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, I'm thrilled to be recording uh, our first debut episode uh, of this new co-branded podcast, uh, which is a joint venture from both Inbound Logistics and Zometry. And we're going to be examining uh, the exciting cross-section between manufacturing and the supply chain uh, throughout the year. And uh, today, as uh, we said, we're going to be jumping into the top uh, trends that are really crucial for supply chain and manufacturing sectors today. Uh, but let's start quickly with some introductions. Uh, Joe, you are the CEO of CSX, which is one of the nation's largest rail carriers. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and your focus today at CSX. Sure, Amy. Thanks. You know, I retired four years ago as president of Ford Motor Company, so I spent 31 years in the auto industry, 10 years at General Motors, 19 at Ford, and a couple of years in private equity. And came out of retirement a couple of years ago to uh, get the chance to lead uh, CSX. We're the largest a rail company east of the Mississippi. There's two class ones in, in the U.S., east of Mississippi and two west of Mississippi. And so um, we're proud to be the largest provider of rail on this part of the, of the continent. And we're really excited about what we're doing to obviously increase the, the accessibility and use of rail, um, but also to help the, the whole economy run better through the supply chain. Fantastic. Okay, Wes, uh, share a little bit about your background and tell us your uh, role and your focus there uh, at Zometry. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you, Amy. Good to meet you, Joe. Uh, so as Senior Vice President for Enterprise at Zometry, I lead some of our largest customers through a lot of this digital transformation that we're seeing today as they're solving for a lot of uh, what I would consider their supply chain management, supply chain as a service transition uh, yeah, as a company, we are a true manufacturing, custom manufacturing partner to some of the world's largest uh, organizations. My background lends itself, you would think of um, from a tech space, I came from Dell, then Hitachi and EMC. But when you really peel that back, all those are very large manufacturing companies. Um, and just previously to Zometry, I spent uh, several years at Salesforce in the tech and cloud space. And so there's this blend of the, what I led there from a manufacturing perspective and launching the manufacturing cloud and then coming into Zometry as we lean so heavily into supporting our manufacturing customers uh, and then leading with AI. It's a good blend of technology supporting some of that effort. Great, thank you. Well, I'm looking forward to a really good uh, discussion today. We have three trends that we're going to explore and let's just jump in with the first one, uh, which is digitalization, uh, this whole digital transformation that is taking place uh, across manufacturing and in the supply chain uh, with technologies such as artificial intelligence, IoT, blockchain, big data. I mean, you'd, you'd really have to be under a rock to not know that this is happening. Um, but the first question I want to ask you both is, is, is all of this hype justified? You know, are we really in the midst of this digital transformation across the board? Or is this something that's really, um, you know, just for larger companies at this point? And Joe, I'd love to start with you to get your thoughts there. Yeah, sure, Amy. I mean, I think the word hype in itself, you know, brings about a little bit of a, of a feeling about about what I'll say here. I mean, over time, look at technology advancements. Um, historically, we've we've overestimated the timeline at which they would they would affect us, but yet underestimated the impact. And I think that's true 
with AI and machine learning as well, meaning it's going to take us a little bit longer than probably people are hyping up today, but the impact is profound. If you think about our rail network and managing the supply chain logistics of, of the American economy, a lot of things happen every day. And when you use artificial intelligence with all the data, if you get the data into the right place and you can access it and use it, you can make real-time decisions with some, with some brain somewhere doing all the simulations to see how should you adapt. For example, in the rail network, you know, we're an outdoor sport. Things happen every day. There's weather. There may be a locomotive has a mechanical problem. There may be a crossing that gets blocked. There may be a crew that doesn't show up because they're sick. And we have to make real-time decisions all day long about how to optimize the network and make sure we're serving our customers. And artificial intelligence with data can simulate all that quickly and tell you what, the, what you should do at this moment. Or how do you switch cars in a yard? What's the prioritization? And what sequence do you do when you're building the trains, you're building the consciousness? Or even all of the automation we use for inspection. Uh, we have tr transportation inspection portals where we're, we're actually using cameras to watch trains as they go by and make sure everything's okay. All that learning can help us get better from a safety standpoint. So there's so much potential um, to help us run more efficiently, to be more safe, but also to be more efficient um, in everything that we do. It's just going to take time to get the data where it needs to be and have the technology advance with the software and the physical assets to make that happen. Yeah, I think potential is really the key word there. Uh, and Wes, on your side, which of these digital tools uh, do you see manufacturers you know, using and embracing the most? Uh, I think they're, they're racing to figure out how to leverage data intelligently. Um, I think that's an absolute true statement from what we see in our customer base there's an, a need to leverage data more intelligently from the perspective that um, we lack resources in the manufacturing space. From an overall headcount perspective, we can't find the, the right talent to resource. And so we're leveraging data in a more you know, intrinsic way from that perspective. AI is becoming a true um, center focus from our customer base. I think we see 70% of US manufacturers today are basically saying that if we can't leverage AI in the next few years, we're going to continue to fall behind. So there's a race to understand how to leverage that type of uh, intelligence into their environment. I think the questions they're asking themselves are, how do we do it in a safe environment and so that we're not exposing risk into our business and being compliant? We use, we use AI in the, in, a, in the right fashion from a government perspective. The regulations and the, the customers we serve are very tightly bound uh, from regulatory needs and ITAR, and so how do we how do we adapt in you know that intelligence into the business uh, in a methodical way? And so I think that's where we're again we're seeing our customers really lean into understanding how do we use this in in the manner that's going to progress our business forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and can either of you share you know results oriented information from uh, either your you know what you're doing yourselves or what you've seen out there uh, on either side? What are some of the benefits that companies who are able to put these technologies into play? You know, what are, how are they reaping those benefits? Yeah, let me, let me kick it off, Joe. I'm sure you've got real-time examples as well. <clears throat> what I find our customers leaning into right now is because Dometry really lends itself from an AI perspective at this engine on the front end, they're finding the ability to not have to do capital-intensive resourcing from uh, a people perspective if they can leverage that, that intelligence from the software first. That helps from an overall perspective of, putting the right human capital um, into a more strategic motion versus tactical. And so we're seeing that real time in our, in our, in, in our auto, uh, auto manufacturers, our biotech space, and in particular with aerospace and defense, where 
they're doing a lot of prototyping and rapid production uh, work where we are really leveraging that intelligence from a software perspective, which again, alleviates some of that initial uh, demand from, from human capital that's not skilled to do the work yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Uh, Joe, I'll, on your side? I'll use two examples, one from my previous life. In the automotive industry, we were using all the data that we had on the warranty and the, and the real-time data coming from connected vehicles to get in front of warranty or quality issues and to be able to identify in advance where things were happening and narrow the scope of a, of a recall or a warranty item to be able to narrow it really. And that saves millions and millions of dollars. Mm -hmm. In the rail industry, for example, what we've been doing lately, as I mentioned briefly earlier, is using um, the data that we're collecting from our inspection portals for whether, whether it's temperature or whether it's visual from cameras and teaching our systems to look for abnormalities or look for problems so that we can identify issues before they become a big problem on the rail network. Perfect example of that is bearing detectors. Um, we use steel wheels on steel rail and bearing is offset, it can heat up. Um, and when it heats up, it gets too hot, it can actually burn the and actually dislodge the wheel and that causes the derailment. So the whole industry has been really actively working on algorithms and AI in the background, watching the data in real time with connected sensors to see what's happening with all the temperatures of all the wheels on the network to be able to identify problems before they become too problematic to be able to stop the train inspect the wheel fix it if necessary before it becomes a big problem so these are all real-time things that are happening today okay great those are great examples uh and obviously there's there's a lot of benefits there and there's a lot to be gained from it let's talk a little bit about you know on the other side what are some of the challenges some of the concerns uh, and some of the roadblocks to you know getting to these points with these technologies. Well, I'm sure Wes can talk about it from a technology standpoint, but for us, first and foremost, is getting the data um, into access accessible lakes where we can actually have it all in the same place and make it all presentable. And once you have the data, then in, in, in a central location, accessible quickly, then how do you use it? Um, and how do you use providers like Zometry or others to help you It'll come to solutions that can use it. So first and foremost is getting the data in accessible form and in a place you can get to it. And then you have to use software and you have to train systems to make that happen. I'm sure uh, Wes can give you good examples of that. No, yeah, Joe, it's a good point. It's um, We have a, an abundance of data that's coming at our, um, our, our, our customers and our teams uh, on site from, I'm sure your perspective, your employees, as well as uh, we feel the same way that how we leverage data is probably some of the biggest challenges our customers are trying to interpret that. From my perspective, I think the, the largest concern, which I shared earlier, where we, where we see constraint is, um, are we adhering to the use of data in, a mo in the most meaningful way and remaining compliant? Uh, without exposing risk to our business or our customers' business, that is what stays top of mind for us and that we're resonant in making sure that we are securing the environments and that the data is being, uh, again, populated for use for useful intent that is meaningful, but also in a secured space. Uh, we take that very seriously from a zometry perspective, and I think our customers lean back on us to, to know that we are doing that in a big way. And so that's where we see that continued success. But it's an ever present challenge, and especially in the environment where we are today, based off of, uh, you know, I think geopolitical environments and just the overall economy coming out of COVID and the shift into, you know, supply chain. And then I think where we may take this conversation next is reshoring and things of that nature. 
Absolutely. Yeah. One, one more question on this side, and we will jump right into reshoring, like you mentioned. Um, we're at the early stages of all of these technologies, and they're already, you know, doing amazing things. So what are the, some of the solutions, you know, that are kind of future facing that maybe we'll get to in five years that you're starting to look at now? Yeah, I'll, I'll speak on at least on the rail network. I mean, you think about autonomy in automobiles and the vehicle systems that you've heard so much about, but we're already using a system called positive train control in the background that, that is actually watching what's happening with our trains. And we're using a trip optimizer, which is setting the speeds automatically to optimize for fuel. As you think forward, and we don't know the timeline yet, there'll be more of those technologies that will help the, the network run more fluidly, also more efficiently and safer. Um, it may be someday we have autonomous trains, um, but that's not anywhere in the, in the near future. Um, that's an example. Um, but you also you think about in our world, the network effect is so critically important. We have a dispatch center um, and it's watching the entire network and making decisions and communicating in real time with our, our engineers and conductors and our trains and, and everyone in our yards. And, and that becomes more automated. You can, again, make real time decisions that are that are simulating everything and help, helping to bring to life better decision making quicker um, and also understanding all the downstream effects of decisions that are made in real time. So those things are going to come to life at some point in time in our supply chain, in our rail network, and we're pretty excited about them. Yeah. Joe, that's, a, that's really interesting. I think about your business, <clears throat> um, and I think about where we are taking our technology as a company. There's just a, an opportunity to think about you've got you've got a very large geographic space that you're covering uh, across the, the U.S., and we have suppliers and partners that are within our network. And I, I see a world where we are identifying the ability to, if you have something that needs to be supplied, a part that needs to be repaired, replaced, or immediately addressed, we have the ability to identify partners that are within the region to expedite lead times, drive efficiency in your business. Um, that's coming really, really quickly. I don't even know that that's two to three years out, right. being able to do that at rapid scale for, for most of our customers. Um, but that is really when I think about the technology of us being able to identify the partners within region and lead time, driving efficiency and looking at the cost model. Um, that's probably the most, you know, the compelling event we're driving towards to serve our customers most. There's no question that visibility is going to change um, how the supply chain interacts in real time and making decisions. Um, and 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 matter of fact, a lot of it happening automatically, meaning that you know, a customer places knows it has a need for an empty box car. Let's say we know the box car is two hours away, and and without human interaction, people the machines are talking to each other, and they end up showing up the right time and place. Those things are going to happen, and again, it brings a lot about a lot more efficiency in our supply chain, which brings about efficiency in the overall economy. Yeah, well, one more point on that. It's a, such a good point. When we again, when I'm thinking about our platform and the technology and where we're leaning, that visibility, the transparency, and we've recently launched some of that software to give transparency to our customer base. If you've got, you know, a project that you're working on and you have multiple teams that are contributing to that project, now there's visibility on where you are in staging of the the, the hardware that's actually shipping to the location. You know, if it's being built if it's being shipped, where it is in transit and the expected, you know, the timing of that so that you can start pulling multiple parts together to collaborate against the team that it may very well be dispersed, but having that 
visibility is key. I think you hit a great point of just saying visibility will change this. And that's really where I think we see the technology leaning. Great points. Uh, a lot to keep our eyes on, a lot to uh, look forward to. And I'm, I'm sure we could do a whole podcast just on this. But uh, let's jump into our second uh, big trend, which is nearshoring and reshoring. Uh, Wes, I'm going to start with you. Obviously, this is huge in manufacturing right now. Tell us a little bit about what is driving this surge and uh, you know what are you seeing in that area? Uh, well, I think a lot of that, I touched on it earlier, um, certainly true. Our, ma our manufacturing customers today are looking for ways to optimize um, bringing things back reshored, nearshored. And as I mentioned, there's a, a political climate that is somewhat driving that. There's also uh, the need for increased lead times and being closer to the source and understanding that we could resource more effectively in the US and drive that efficiency from uh, being able to be domestically built. What we're struggling with is just some of how we're working from a pricing perspective. And that is where, again, Zometry comes in and, and has the ability to leverage a really vast network of partners across the domestic U.S. and abroad. Um, but when we look at that opportunity for us, it's really, really one of the most driving forces in our business for growth around how are we bringing some of that back and securing uh, some of that business in the U.S. To, to obviously propel the growth forward for our customers. Um, I would say ITAR and some of the other requirements obviously play a really big effect from security perspective. And so we're, we're doing that a lot with our aerospace and defense companies today. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and can you talk a little bit about how much of this is being driven by risk mitigation? I know you mentioned some of the, you know, geo global, geopolitical rather and global issues going on, uh, lessons learned from the pandemic. Is that still some of what's driving people is wanting to, you know, have things closer to, uh, cut out those risk factors? Um, I, it is. I think the reality of the, the environment is that we are living in you know, a, new, a new world every day. I think we woke up this morning and we see more of that inherent risk from a geopolitical perspective. It is driving us to focus on how do we bring that back home. I also see um, some, of, some of what's happening from a shipping and a container perspective. And Joe, you know, I, I'm sure you see this and you see it from a macro perspective in your, in your world from logistics perspective quite often the long tail associated with navigating our international waters is becoming more complex as well. And so having ships that are sitting offshore, not able to get into port or uh, not able to leave port for other sanction issues, like that is things we're, we're contending with today, which are driving up overall costs and we reevaluating what we can do domestically. Again, Joe, I think that really sits also, again, thinking about containers and, and landing right in your wheelhouse from a CSX perspective. Yeah, actually, um, we're, we're actually very fortunate because CSX is the largest railroad in the eastern United States and a good portion of the reshoring coming back to America is happening in the southeast. There are mm -hmm. other places, but predominantly a lot of it's southeast or the southern Midwest. And so we see a lot of that industrial development, a lot of what's happening. We have hundreds of projects going on on our network with customers who are looking to relocate or, or, or in case build new um, production capability here in the U.S. on our network in our area. And it's all the things that you've talked about already, which is some of it's for domestic security or national security, you know, whether it's chips or other things like that. Um, but also there's just the practicality of what we learned and saw through COVID and then the geopolitical risk going on in the world is it's just too much supply chain risk to manage all these different issues internationally. So you're seeing a lot more coming back to the U.S. It's very exciting. 
got to make sure we have the workers to make it happen. Um, but it also allows us to have more industrial production here in the U.S. over time. We're seeing it in steel. We're seeing it in um, a bunch of things for electrification, uh, whether it's vehicles or whether it's lithium or other types of batteries. We're seeing it a lot in places like chemicals and aggregates, things of things that um, can be built and manufactured or, or constructed here. And it's an exciting time. And it's actually, you know, after decades of people going to China or Vietnam or the or Asia or even Mexico, to see some of that coming back is, is good for the economy and good for the country. Yeah, absolutely. And I would imagine for, for CSX, you know, rail is, is, is somewhat particularly well positioned to kind of benefit from this reshoring activity due to capacity, fuel efficiency, you know, cost effectiveness for long haul uh, transportation. Can you touch a little bit on, you know, maybe how you're preparing and, and how you see yourselves uh, situated to handle the surge? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've been around 197 years. So we've been in, in all these places a long time. We have over 20,000 miles of track through 26 states. And so what we do is partner with states um, for their economic development to um, get land on our network or near our network um, as, as a site and then market it together. The state economic development group, CSX, others will market it. Um, and that accessibility to rail is very important to a lot of major um, industrial enterprises uh, because of the, as you mentioned, the lower cost of rail, especially over longer distance, also four times better for the environment as far as lower emissions. Also, it keeps more freight and more trucks off the roads, which is becoming more and more a problem with congestion and taxpayers paying for the upkeep of the roads and whatnot. So we have a good story to tell. The states really want to partner with us. They, they would prefer a lot of this material be on rail, get it off the roads. Um, and so it's, it's a great opportunity for us. And, and that's exciting. And I said, we have about 500 projects going on in the Southeast and Midwest United States right now um, on our network or touching our network in some way, shape or form to be able to take advantage of that. Absolutely. Interesting, Joe. I um, I live in the state of North Carolina. I'm in Raleigh. Huge initiatives here. In 2022, we saw uh, several companies reshoring back into so 106 companies actually made land uh, in 2022 in just North Carolina. It netted almost 50,000 jobs. You're a direct contributor to that, just driving some of that activity. So one, thank you. Two, uh, we see a lot of that continuing. EV is a huge production area for us. Um, in the space, and a lot of industrial manufacturers just generally find the appeal of our state from a tax incentive perspective, and it's been really productive for us. And so, um, yeah, I think what we're seeing is job creation, which is also ben you know, benefiting uh, our local economies. Yeah, the VinFast plant being going to be built in North Carolina is on our network. Um, awesome. Uh, it's an electric vehicle plant. The Rivian plant being built outside Atlanta is on our network. The Ford plant being built outside of Memphis, Tennessee is on our network. So they want that connectivity for supply chain of coming in, but also shipping of vehicles. So that's really important. Electric vehicle manufacturing is coming into the Southeast and a lot of that's new on our network. Uh, but you said, I mean, uh, there's also conversations around passenger rail, which uses our network um, in North Carolina and Raleigh-Durham and other places around how does that also advance in the future. So again, it's all about this movement of people and goods and we can do it more efficiently it helps the overall economy and helps society. And then yeah. I get stuck less often on I-95 going to Charleston. Yeah, right? I-95 okay. <laughs> is rough from Miami up to Maine, so. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's not great in New York either, so. Yeah. 
Uh, well, I think all of these projects also tie nicely into uh, our last trend, which is to talk a little bit about the labor market. Um, and either of you who wanted to jump in on this first, uh, labor shortages obviously have been kind of a, you know, a thorn in the side for a while now. What are you seeing now, both from the manufacturing side and for transportation uh, or as a transportation provider, rather, uh, in terms of workforce? Are you struggling to you know, attract and retain skilled labor? What, what is the state right now? Well, I'll go first. You know, we um, coming, you know, when COVID hit, a lot of major manufacturers and major companies like CSX lay a lot of people off in reaction to trying to save cash. And in the transportation industry, whether it's trucking or rail or others, a lot of those people didn't come back when the economy quickly bounced back. And that caused a lot of disruption in the supply chain for a number of years. Uh, at least at CSX now, we're, we're back to the levels we want to be at from a from a manpower standpoint, um, but it takes a long time to rebuild that trained, capable workforce um, that you want to have. But we're finding, I found this when I was in the auto industry and finding it in the now in the rail industry, um, you know, the, the next generation of workers are, are in general less interested in doing some of this work. You know, we're an outdoor sport, you know, it's outside, it's um, mechanical, electrical, it's physical. And whether it's auto mechanics or or electricians or tool makers in the auto industry, or whether it's, um, you know, conductors and engineers or carmen, or even, you know, those who work in our shops to repair things in the rail industry, just getting that next, that, that next generation of workers to work with their hands, work on mechanical, electrical stuff is really important. And we're going to have to do more apprenticeship type activity. And so what I'm hearing, and I was at a CEO event a couple of weeks ago, and that was the major topic of how do we get the next generation of workers to do these important jobs are well-paying jobs are they're good careers but how do we get the next generation of our of our workforce to be interested in these kind of jobs because they're not video games they're not they're not sitting inside um and they're working with your hands they're getting dirty there's all these types of things and that's going to be a challenge i think for our economy because they're really important skills Absolutely. yeah uh, yeah you're 100 uh on point it's good to hear that you're you're feeling as though you're back to full capacity, Joe, if I think I heard that correctly. I still yep. see from a manufacturing uh, perspective that on the whole, and probably when you were at that, that session a few weeks ago, there's over 600,000 manufacturing jobs that are still vacant, right? Um, that, are, that are unable to be filled because they don't have the skilled workforce. There's, there may be folks available, but we need to enable them to be skilled. Um, from a zometry perspective, we are technology enabled and it's it's obviously helping. And I think that is where we, you know, essentially focus as we look to grow our own workforce. Um, we have an ability to attract some talent, but there's this connotation associated with manufacturing, uh, generally speaking, that it is less appealing than technology companies. And so the talent pool that we're fighting for from an engineering perspective, great engineering minds, generally speaking for manufacturers, folks want to go work at the next uh, Meta or Google, right? And instead, there's so many great opportunities to go work at an organization like yourselves or others um, that, we're gonna, that are going to challenge the same level of skill set. So it's how do we attract that talent and get them um, interested and intrigued to come work in these environments? Uh, and it is an outdoor sport. It's a great point. It's also, in, it's really an opportunity if we start at the early levels. One of the things we focus on is how do we get into spending time at the high school level, at the community colleges, 
where we're learning trades and spend time and educating them on what this what this field can mean to their career. I'll share just one example. A uh, gentleman who used to deliver firewood to my house, he was a college kid. He told me that he was going to the seminary school to get his master's and he was working with the AC HVAC team and he was learning the trade. And I said, Mason, there's a huge opportunity for that, for that business model. <clears throat> Fast forward five years, he now has five trucks that roll every morning with a crew of 12. He can't keep up with the work, right? Um, because he learned to trade, he went to school, he got certified. While he still got his master's, he found an opportunity in a field that drove his intellectual business mind, uh, but he gets to work in a field that is obviously uh, doing really well for him and his family, and he's putting you know other folks to work, which is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about it for decades, but America needs to continue to stimulate its youth to be interested in, in the STEM fields. Um, if you look at a lot of the Asian economies, um, they're just putting out on a per capita basis a lot more engineers or other STEM type um, a tech, you know, technical based capabilities. And it's a skill set that matters, not necessarily the degree, but it's the skill set yeah. that's important and the mindset, um, whether it's writing software code or whether it's solving problems technically or the like. And then, um, you know, as you said it, we got to, we got to, we have to bring this, this value back to people that, that work with their hands, that, that solve problems, that keep America running. Um, we have to bring back that appreciation. We, and so at CSX, we've been able to get to our levels by largely working on our culture and working on how people feel and how they work together at CSX and make it a desirable place to work um, and celebrate our workforce that creates the value for the company and try to create an environment where they feel appreciated and valued. And that's taken a lot of a lot of work, but it's really important so to make us an attractive place to be in, and then obviously have people stay here. Yeah, it's great. It's great to hear you both uh, echo that message that I think it is really, uh, you know, a focus on the trades and on manufacturing and some of these jobs that maybe don't get the cachet of tech, but really are so crucial to the economy. It's it's great to hear you both uh, echo that. And and a related question, how do you do some of this recruitment and some of this training? I know you mentioned maybe apprenticeship programs uh, with balancing labor costs. Labor costs is always a huge issue. So uh, can you talk a little bit about how you look to do that? Well, labor costs have been a big issue, especially getting a lot of attention in the last couple of years with um, uh, more active, you know, labor negotiations. In some cases, some strikes like in the auto industry or in the rail industry went to Congress to avoid a strike to shut the economy yeah. down. Um, you know, listen, coming out of COVID, employees feel more emboldened and feel more empowered because of the supply demand dynamics of there being more jobs open than there were candidates, but also just the nature of how people looked at life and perspective on work um, during all of COVID. And so we're going through that transition right now. For us, we've got to make it a place people want to work. We want to make it an environment people want to be a part of and want to make it a place they want to refer to their friends and family. Referrals, whether now with all the online activity, um, you know, people can find out very quickly what people are saying about companies, what it's like to work there. They can reach out to people. And so just critically important that our employees become advocates and, um, for our company and our culture, and they have to be part of that solution. So it is a challenge. It's going to be a challenge, uh, I think, for quite some time as we transition. Also, less time at home, more time in the office. There's a lot of angst and, um, um, and discussions about that. So we're going through a phase right now where labor has you know, used some of its power to um, you know, get some better contracts and also where people have said, hey, we want to have some flexibility with our work-life balance and things of that nature. And as companies 
we have to be responsive to that while still creating a culture of people working together, spending time together, and also getting the job done. So it's not an easy time right now. Um, mm -hmm. But if we if we engage the workforce in being part of the solution and, and creating a culture where they can feel like they're valued and appreciated, I think we can have a lot of success. Absolutely. Wes, anything to add from uh, the manufacturing side on what you're seeing there? Uh, one, well, Joe, it's good to hear that you spend so much emphasis on um, you're building a strong culture. It really, it really drives that longevity, especially when it comes to thinking about retention and then finding those referrals folks that uh, it's one of the best ways to attract, retain and even recruit talent is from the folks that are already in your environment. So that's fantastic to hear. We focus a lot on that as well. One thing we didn't touch on was um, the diversity perspective in this field, particularly with manufacturing. We do a fair amount of surveys um, some with Zogsby's and, and Forbes and others. And uh, one of the results that we've come, we've come to the conclusion is that 80% of women in manufacturing recommend a career in manufacturing, but they land somehow in the space unintentionally. Uh, mm -hmm. But there's a huge focus, I think, as a company for us to, to drive that diversity because it, it lends a new lens, opens aperture to a uh, new perspective when we think about how we're serving a community and how we're serving our customers uh, and our customers' customers when we have you know different eyes on that particular project and effort. So there's a tremendous amount of uh, focus for us on building culture, um, starting early, again, STEM and, and starting with our youth and educating them on the opportunity and then thinking about how do we embody what you know our society looks like and bring that into, into our environments at work with a level of diversity that's equitable. Yeah, good point. And, and it increases the talent pool too, of course. Absolutely. We yeah. need, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right, great. So we're gonna just kind of put our future caps on real quick and uh, I wanna throw it out to both of you. Obviously there's a lot of trends that we're talking about and working on already to, to keep ourselves busy, but what do you see coming uh, down the pike maybe in the next five years or so for both freight transportation and manufacturing, any new, uh, you know, trends that are popping up and what can companies do now to be thinking about and getting ready for whatever is coming next? All right, I'll, I'll kick it off, Joe. You can think about it for a second too. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, I, I don't I don't have uh, any more of a crystal ball than than the other, than the, the two of you, but I, I see a world where um, AI will play a really pivotal role in continued digital transformation in our businesses. Um, I see an opportunity where nearshoring will continue to strengthen over the next three to five years uh, and we can probably continue to scale much past that if we can optimize pay structures associated with overall cost. I think that the, some of the barriers of entry from a reshoring perspective is just the overall, you know, again, the cost associated with it, even with tariffs, we're still, um, you know, we're still battling some of that on the U.S. side. Um, and I think the opportunity for us to strengthen our, our workforce and build diversity will continue. If we start now, I think if we look three to five years uh, from, from today, we will see an influx of folks that are thinking about a skilled trade as a true career, because not everyone needs to finish or go to a four-year or get a degree in business. There are lots of different ways to make, uh, you know, make a career and make a great living in uh, certainly in the domestic US and abroad uh, with a skilled trade. Yeah, well said, Wes, I agree with everything you said. I'll just add to that by saying, I think technology as a broader topic, including inclusive of AI and machine learning, 
but technology will continue to advance and we we will take advantage of it to become more efficient and to be safer and to provide better products and services and why is that important because advancement in society uh, and our standards of living is so dependent upon productivity improvements as we've seen labor increase costs we've seen other increased costs lately whether other types of inflation um, we have to get back as a society as an economy of getting more efficient getting more productive to help pay for those you know increased costs and that's when society and gdp advances but also society standard of living advances when we increase our productivity so how do we do that how do we leverage technology how do we leverage ai the skills of our people how do we do that to make that happen that's going to be critically important i think the geopolitical um, uncertainty uh, is going to continue to be around and so back to the nearshoring, the production locally here, you'll see more of that to be able to make sure that we can have the right resources and the right capabilities here to keep our economy running, uh, both for defense of the country, but also um, in growing the economy. And it's all about people. Um, as Wes said, I mean, we have to keep investing in our people, creating a culture where people wanna work and wanna be a part of a team and feel valued and appreciated can contribute. And that includes everybody. That includes everybody um, from all walks of life. and and we do have to get back to valuing all the roles people play, um, not just the CEO or not just the head of this department, but every role that people play is get back to valuing that and creating creating that culture where, where everyone feels good about what they do and they can they can advance their own ways to help their own families, but also society. So exciting times ahead. Um, if it were easy, you know, they wouldn't need all of this. Um, but at the same time, I think if you're not, you're an optimist like I am. You can appreciate the potential that this economy and the society has if we continue to advance forward. Absolutely. Well, fantastic insights, gentlemen. Thank you so much again for sharing your time. And I know our audience got a lot of really good takeaways. Uh, so thanks so much. Thank, thank you. you, Amy. Appreciate the time. Great yeah, to meet you. Thank you for watching this inbound logistics video podcast. For more episodes, go to www.inboundlogistics.com/podcast.